Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part one of Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity by Dr. Peter Atia. If you've listened to my podcast before, you know I've been a longtime fan of Dr. Peter Atia. So much so that I actually wrote about him in my personal statement when I was applying to residency. He also has his own podcast called The Drive, which I highly recommend you check out. And I also haven't been this excited for a book to come out since David Sinclair's Lifespan book. So we're going to begin with chapter one, which is the long game from fast death to slow death. Peter will never forget the first time when he saw a patient die. It was during his second year of medical school when he was volunteering at a hospital. This woman came in, she was in her mid to early thirties and she came into the ER complaining of shortness of breath. Now, a few minutes later, the woman became unconscious. Her eyes rolled to the back of her head. And they started to have, uh, they started to run the code in the hospital, quote unquote code, where, you know, they start chest compressions and they start the defibrillator and all that stuff. And he was sitting in the corner, just kind of observing. And one of the residents told him to come over and help her with the chest compression, to help them with the chest compressions and all that. So he jumped in and started doing chest compressions on this lady. Now, he would see many other patients die from this point on but this woman's death really haunted him for years now and he now suspects that she probably died of a pulmonary embolism but he kept wondering what was really wrong with her what was going what really made her come to the er in the first place and would have things been different if she had been if she had better access to health care could her sad could her sad fate have been changed later as a surgical resident at johns hopkins He would learn that death comes in two speeds, fast death and slow death. Now, working at Johns Hopkins in the inner city of Baltimore, he saw a lot of fast death. Fast death refers to things like the gun violence, the knives, the automobile accidents, the stuff that's going to kill you really quickly. Now, he also saw the slow deaths later on. So the slow deaths referring to things like diabetes, cancer, dementia, cardiovascular disease, the stuff that is slow growing and that is long undetected before it kills you. And these are the quote unquote slow deaths. But of course, this outlived book is not about death. It is actually quite the opposite. In fact, his focus as a physician is on longevity. The problem is that the he doesn't really like the word longevity itself. It's been a hopeless taint. It's This word has been hopelessly tainted by a centuries-long parade of different quacks and charlatans, the way he puts it, who have claimed to possess the secret elixir to a longer life. And he doesn't really want to be associated with these people. So we're going to start by what longevity isn't. Longevity does not mean living forever or even to age 120 or 150. Longevity also does not merely mean notching more and more birthdays as we slowly wither away. So in the, in the 1900s, life expectancy hovered somewhere around the age of 50. And most of these people likely died from these quote-unquote fast causes, like accidents, injuries, infections. And since then, slow death has, very, has really uh, supplanted fast death. And most, most people nowadays die from the quote-unquote slow causes. The odds are overwhelming that you will die as a result of one of the chronic diseases of aging, that he calls the four horsemen. If you've listened to his podcast before or listened to him on someone else's podcast, 
he's talked about the four horsemen over and over. So what are these four horsemen? The four horsemen are heart disease, cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, and type 2 diabetes and other related metabolic dysfunction. To achieve longevity, to live longer and live a better and better for longer, we must understand and confront these causes of slow death. Again, these four horsemen. Now, longevity has two components to it. The first is how long you live, your chronological lifespan. But the second and equally important part is how well you live. This is the quality of your years. This is called the health span. Health span is typically defined as the period of life when we are free from disability and disease. Now, there's also a second part of health span. And the second part of our plan for this longevity is really to maintain and improve our physical and mental function. Now, the key, the key question is, where are, we, where are we headed from here? What's, what is your future tra trajectory? And the point is, what are some stuff we can do now to improve our lifespan and improve our health span? Now, one of the main obstacles in anyone's quest for longevity is the fact that the skills that he acquired and a lot of his colleagues acquired and the stuff that I acquired during my training was our medical training was very effective against these fast deaths rather than the slow deaths. So we were able to fix broken bones and wipe out infections and treat sepsis and even replace damaged organs. But we were markedly less successful at helping our patients with these chronic conditions like cancer, like cardiovascular disease, or neurological disease, and evade the types of deaths that are killing us in the long run. Now, the problem is, is that we're, it's not from a lack of trying. Modern me medicine has thrown an unbelievable amount of effort and resources at each of these diseases that I'm talking about. But our progress has been less than, st less than stellar. We have made some progress in cardiovascular disease and cancer. But again, ever since the war on cancer, cancer the death rates from cancer have hardly budged. And this is the same thing with type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is still a raging public health crisis. And when it comes to different dementias and Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease, again, really no, virtually no effective treatment has been on the horizon. Now, I wanted to go back to the beginning where at the beginning of every episode, he puts a quote. And this is a quote by Bishop Desmond Tutu. And the quote goes, There comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. But in every case, we are intervening. And this goes to the point that I'm about to make. We are intervening at the wrong point in time, well after the, the disease has taken hold and often when it's already too late. Now, again, going back to that quote, we need to find out why they're falling in the river in the first place. While the prevalence of each of the, the, the four horsemen diseases increases sharply with age, they typically, they typically begin much earlier than we recognize, and they generally take a long time to kill you. Even when someone dies, quote-unquote, suddenly of a heart attack, the disease had likely been progressing in the coronary arteries for decades. This is an example. Even though someone dies of an MI right away, there's been plaque buildup over the years. Now, the logical conclusion is that we need to step in sooner to try to stop the horsemen in the tracks, or even better yet, prevent them altogether. Here's another example. 
Type 2, type 2 diabetes offers a perfect example. The standard of care treatment guidelines by the American Diabetes Association specify that patients can be diagnosed with diabetes when their hemoglobin A1c returns at 6.5 or higher. Now, hemoglobin A1c, again, is a marker for diabetes. It tracks how much glucose is attached to your hemoglobin. And if your number is 6.5 or higher, you are considered diabetic. Now, if their number comes back, if their A1c comes back and it's 6.4, which is implying an average glucose of about 137, they technically, they technically don't have type 2 diabetes at all. Instead, they have a condition called prediabetes. So prediabetes is anywhere between 5.7 and 6.4 A1c. And the standard of care guidelines recommended recommends just doing mild amount of exercise, vaguely defined you know, dietary changes, and possibly using um, a glucose control medication like metformin. So basically, it's waiting to see if the patient actually develops diabetes before treating it as an urgent problem. Now, Peter would argue that this is almost the exact this is almost the exactly wrong way to approach type 2 diabetes. And as we will see a little bit later, type 2 diabetes belongs to a spectrum of metabolic dysfunction. And this begins long before someone crosses that magical, you know, 6.4 threshold. So type 2 diabetes is merely the last stop on the line. And of course, this is something that Mark Hyman talks about all the time. Diabetes, our glucose is on a spectrum. And just another uh, quick aside, I just had this patient yesterday come into our clinic and he came in for routine follow-up labs and his number was 6.4, 6.6. So he was just barely diabetic. And of course, we started him on metformin and we gave him the counseling and his medical literacy was kind of low. So I was trying to explain to him that even though you're just barely diabetic, diabetes lies on a spectrum and you always have a chance to revert the number to previous, as long as you do the right things. So he was very concerned about this and what 6.6 means, but I was trying to explain to him that with this metformin medication, with proper diet and exercise, you know, nutrition, that kind of stuff, we can revert the number. Now, he believes that our goal should be to act as early as possible to try to prevent people from developing type 2 diabetes and all the other horsemen that he talks about. We should be proactive instead of reactive in our approach. Changing that mindset must be our first step in attacking slow death. We want to delay or prevent these conditions so that we can live longer without disease rather than lingering with disease. Now, he kind of transitions to another story. Back in September 2009, September 8th, 2009, was the day that he will never forget. September 8, 2009, he was standing on the beach of Catalina Island when his wife, Jill, turned to him and said, Peter, I think you should work on being a little less not thin. So Peter, he had just finished, by the way, he had just finished swimming for 14 hours, 21 miles from Los Angeles to Catalina. So he did that swim, 21 miles, 14 hours. And his wife, again, criticized him, saying, I think you should work on being a little less not thin. And he instantly knew that his wife was right. Without even realizing it, he had actually ballooned up to 210 pounds, which was about 50 pounds more than his, you know, quote unquote, fighting weight as a teenage boxer. Now, despite the fact that he had exercised fanatically 
and ate what he believed to be a healthy diet, he had some, he had already become some component of some degree of insulin resistant. And he was on his, you know, the first steps down the road to being type 2 diabetic and many other bad things. His, tos- his testosterone, by the way, was also below the fifth percentile for a man his age. Now, that moment on the beach on, on September 8th, 2009, marked the beginning of his interest in, again, that, that word we talked about, longevity. He was 36 years old, and he was on the precipice. He had just become a father, and he would soon learn that many of the various risk factors that he had many risk factors, like from a genetic standpoint, and all these risk factors and his genetics likely pointed towards an early death from cardiovascular disease for him. And what he didn't yet realize was that his situation was entirely fixable. Now, each, each one of the four horsemen is cumulative, the product of multiple risk factors adding up and compounding over time. Many of these same individual risk factors, by the way, are relatively easy to reduce or even eliminate. And this is what we're going to get to a little bit later in the future episodes. This is how Peter sees his role. He's not a lab scientist or a clinical researcher, but he's more of a translator, helping you understand and apply these different insights. This requires a thorough understanding of the science, but also a bit of art, just as if we were trying to translate a poem by Shakespeare into another language. His approach to longevity is firmly rooted in science, but there is also a good deal of art in figuring out how and when to apply our knowledge to you, the patient, with your specific genes, your history and habits, and your goals. He believes that we already know more than enough to bend the curve in someone's life. This is why he called the book Outlive. It is meant to, in both senses of the word, live longer and live better. But of course, his intent here is not to tell you exactly what to do. There's enough books out there already to tell you what to do. This is why this book is different. He's not trying to tell you what to do. It's to help, he's more trying to tell you, it's to help you how to think really about doing these different things. For him, this has been the journey, an obsessive process of of study and iteration that began again that day on the Catalina Island. Now, more broadly speaking, Longevity demands a paradigm-shifting approach to medicine, one that directs our efforts towards preventing chronic disease and improving our health span and doing it right now rather than waiting until the disease has taken hold or until our cognitive and physical function has already been declined. It's not quote-unquote preventative medicine, it's proactive medicine. So I really like this. It's not preventative medicine. It's proactive medicine, being proactive with your health. And he believes it has the potential to not only change the lives of individuals, but also to relieve vast amounts of suffering in our society as a whole. So there's so much suffering going on. People who have family members with cancer, everyone knows someone who has died with cancer. Everyone knows someone who has died with a heart attack. So our goal is, again, to relieve suffering in our society as a whole and also be more proactive. And again, in the future episodes, I'll talk about Medicine 3.0 and talk about more about you know, how to be more proactive and things you can do in your life to really change the, the trajectory. So again, this is just a, the broad introduction. This is 
Peter Tia's story. And I hope you tune in next episode and the future episodes so we can dive uh, more deeply into uh, what all this means. So I, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'm going to do, I'm going to really take my time with this book. It's a long book. And again, I haven't been this excited for a book to come out. So I hope you tune in next time in the future episodes so uh, we can talk more about this book. So thank you for listening and I hope you tune in next time.